Excuse me. I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Samuel 17. We are continuing our study through this book uh, in the place where Israel is looking for a leader. And Saul, King Saul, was their choice. Uh, They demanded a king like the other nations, and they got it in Saul, one who actually represented them to a T. But God had another king chosen who would not represent the people so much as he was meant to represent God before the people, one who would have a heart after the Lord, and that is David. And we come today to one of probably the most famous stories in the Bible. Certainly, the one referenced most uh, beyond Christian circles, that of David and Goliath, a well-known reference in the sports world, referencing some person or team who overcomes incredible or seemingly impossible odds to win. Now, one example of this was on November the 9th, 1996. Now, not many of you will actually know the significance of that date, but I do. Uh, I was a senior at the University of Memphis, and on November 9th, Peyton Manning and the Tennessee Volunteers came to town to play. It's the only game in the year, by the way, where I cheer against Tennessee is when they play Memphis. That year, at that moment, actually, Tennessee was ranked, uh, ranked sixth in the nation, and uh, Memphis was unranked. We were accustomed to being unranked at that time. If there were a top 100, my guess is we might still be unranked at that moment even then. And so we were really <clears throat> expected to be slaughtered. Uh, But we filled the Liberty Bowl anyway to see what would happen, to hope that the impossible would happen, and the impossible did happen. The Tigers beat the Vols 21 to 17. The field was rushed. The goalposts were torn down. Pieces of it were sold for ridiculous amounts of money later. And after the game, uh, Peyton Manning just went straight to the point and said this, they just flat whipped us. Now, those are great words for a Memphis Tiger fan to hear after that game. David had defeated Goliath. And here in Indiana, you can't talk about David and Goliath without thinking about uh, the Milan High School basketball team in the 50s, you know, the smallest uh, school to win the state championship before all the conference and division, uh, you know, the class system came in. Uh, that was uh, memorialized in that great movie, Hoosiers. David and Goliath's stories are inspiring, and they do bear some resemblance to the original story. But the story of David Goliath isn't merely about overcoming impossible odds. The story of David and Goliath is actually about God. It's about God's commitment to His glory, His commitment to his people, his commitment to his king. And so, I want us to listen to this story in full. So, let's, beginning at 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1, these 
Words are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Zoko and Ezekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and a, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able, I will fight with him. He will fight. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together." When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite in Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, "'Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle against army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, 
And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and will fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved toward and came near to David and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear." For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back and chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And they took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. 
and he put it and he put his armor in his tent. As soon as David saw as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the, the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul and with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Let's pray. O God, now speak to us through your word. Make clear to us what we must know of you, how we must live for you, how we must think of the world in which we live, how we must obey you. Give us eyes to see your truth. Give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts open to receive it. Give us hands and feet ready to obey it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dive in, I do want to address the last few verses because they can seem confusing and they've led some to think that the Bible contradicts itself. After all, at the end of chapter 16, Saul clearly knows David, but here he appears to not know who David is. You know, he asks, whose son are you? Now, first things first, you'll notice that Saul doesn't ask who, what David's name is. He asks who his family is. As you heard when we read, there were certain guarantees for the one who was going to defeat Goliath, uh, including uh, freedom from taxation for the family. And so, quite possibly, Saul is confirming who the family is that would receive the benefits should he win. Some have also suggested that it's possible that this is not in precise chronological order, but the material is arranged thematically, and that this may have happened earlier than David staying in Saul's service, that he's going back and forth in Saul's service, and that's why uh, he's called a man of valor and those things in chapter 16. Saul could have honestly just forgotten who his father was. The effects of the departure of the Spirit of God could have affected his ability to think. There are a number of possibilities, but the Bible does not contradict itself. I just wanted to make mention of that because it is an issue that people bring up in this chapter. Now, to the chapter itself, what I want to do is actually just walk through the story again in a quick fashion and then talk about the significance of it. The first thing that we ought to know when we come to 1 Samuel 17 and we begin to read it is that on the battlefield, Goliath causes fear. Goliath causes fear. The battle lines are drawn. We're about 12 to 14 miles west of Bethlehem in the valley of Elah. The Philistines are on one side, the Israelites on the other. And Goliath is a beast of a man, and he steps out of the ranks. He's about nine and a half feet tall. He's wearing 126 pounds of bronze, uh, bronze armor. He's carrying a javelin, which is probably more like a sickle, you know, one of those curved swords. Um, he's got a spear that has about a 15-pound tip on it. All of those details are put in the story to underline how scary this man actually looks. And his long, menacing shadow stretches over the valley of Elah, 
and he barks out his challenge in verses 8 to 10. He says, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants. If anyone can kill Goliath, the Philistines will just flat out surrender because in their minds that can't possibly happen. And in Goliath's mind that's the case because if you see in verse 10 he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. That defying is taunting. It's putting them down. It's making light of them. This army, this Israelite army may think they are quite something, but in Goliath's mind they are nothing. And Goliath's defiance must have stuck with the Israelite because the Israelites, because as you go through this chapter, that word defy or defied comes back five more times, but not on Goliath's lips. It comes back on the lips of the Israelites. His defiance rings in the air. It fills the valley of Elah. They see Goliath, they hear Goliath, and they know that there's no way any of them can kill him. Which is why this is the response in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Did you notice the only name mentioned there? Saul. King Saul. Kings are supposed to be brave. Kings are supposed to lead their people into battle. But Saul is just as scared as everyone else. And the army's fear doesn't go away. The next time we see that Goliath stomps out on the field and barks out his challenge and defies everyone and taunts them, uh, we see this response in verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So here's Goliath, like a school bully who spends all day picking on others, taunting them, daring them to fight after school, and no one takes him up on his offer. Goliath causes fear. And what we see in response is that David acts in faith. It's interesting, isn't it? You get to the end of verse 11, Saul and all of Israel are shaking in their boots, quivering, looking for places to hide, huddling together, grabbing someone else and putting them in front of them to try and protect themselves. And then it cuts away to this serene picture of David taking care of sheep, reminding us that he was the youngest, or as it could be translated, the smallest of Jesse's sons. All the ones who looked like a king back in chapter 16, Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah, they're on the battlefield and they're as scared as Saul is and they're with everybody else. David, however, is back at home and his father then sends him to the front lines. But it is interesting that it's just a hard cut between verse 11 and verse 12. The fear on the battlefield and then this boy in the fields with a sheep, taking care of sheep. What in the world can this kid do given that battlefield scene? Well, we find out soon enough. Jesse sends David on a fact-finding mission. He spills his uh, bag with grain and with cheese and with bread. 
for his brothers and for their commander, and he's supposed to bring back news from the front. So verse 20, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Now, can you imagine this 15-year-old boy? He's heard about war. He's been taught about war, probably from his father and from priests who teach Israelite history. But it was all just stories. Now it's real. Now it's right in front of him. He can see it. He can hear it. He can smell it. He's right there at the battle. I mean, those of you who have a 15-year-old son who may only know battle from video games and movies, stepping onto an actual battlefield to see it happening, to hear the war cries. And while he's talking with his brothers, Goliath emerges again to taunt the people for his daily speech. Verse 23, as he talked with him, them, his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. Those last four words are significant, and David heard him. Back in verse 11, Saul and the army are terrified, but now David hears him. David, who is anointed to be the next king. David, who has the Spirit of God empowering him. Those four words, and David heard him, are a hint that something's about to happen. Something different than quivering soldiers and a conquering giant is about to take place on this battlefield. Yes, there's a reward for killing Goliath, a wife, money, tax-free living. That's all well and good. But here's what David really wants to know. End of verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's fascinating, isn't it? David does what no other Israelite has done so far. And what is that? Think about it. David brings God into the situation. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The biggest issue in David's mind is not military victory or defeat. It's not whether the Israelites will serve the Philistines or vice versa. The biggest issue on that battlefield is, the, is that the Philistine is defying the armies of the living God. And remember, defying the armies of the living God is to defy God Himself. Because the armies in that day were thought to represent their God. So if you defied that army, you're defying that God. And David says, who is this guy to defy God? And David's not going to let it happen. David is in a situation where the entire nation is plagued with fear and he brings God into the situation. Friend, we live in a nation plagued by fear right now. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm wondering, have you actually brought God into this situation? 
Or are you only concerned about other factors? Are you only thinking about what might happen to you, what you might gain or what you might lose or what we might lose together? Have you brought the Lord into this situation? Everyone around us, even the people who should be the bravest and have the most courage, those who are leading us, seem to be quivering, not before a giant, but before a microscopic disease. Have you brought God into the situation? David does it, and he says, who is this that defies God? I mean, how do you respond when people defy God, when they speak lightly of Him, when they look at evil and suffering in the world, and then they look at you as a Christian and they say, well, where is your God now? Is He on a break? How do you respond to that kind of thing? Do you pray for courage and speak, or do you slink away in fear? Fear at seeming less intelligent than the other person seems to be, or fear of conflict, or fear of loss of a friendship, or just fear of man in general. I know there are times when I'm on the golf course and I go out by myself, I end up getting paired with other people, and you play usually the first few holes before anybody says, so what do you do for a living? And then when that comes... Uh, the, the, the cursing and the using of the na- Lord's name in vain in the first few holes has happened at some point. And then when they find out that I'm a pastor, they say, well, uh, well we're really, uh, we're sorry. You know, they start apologizing to me, and I think they're just trying to honor the fact that I would not appreciate those things. However, what I tell them is, I appreciate that you are concerned with what I think, but you actually shouldn't be concerned with what I think about you using the Lord's name in vain. You should be concerned with what the Lord thinks about using the Lord's name in vain. And that typically leads to a gospel conversation. As Christians, we must be concerned for the glory of God. We must not look on as others defy His character, defy His name, If you live in a neighborhood with children that are sinners, just like your children, there are times that no matter how much you have taught your children to not use the Lord's name in vain, to not swear, to not do whatever, that others will do it. Do you stop them? Do you speak to them, even though they're not your children, and remind them, this is the God who made them, the God who loves them, the God who gave Jesus to die for them, the God who will judge their life at the end, the God the God they must answer to, and that you won't tolerate them speaking like that. Well, David certainly won't. Now, not everyone is thrilled about David's expression of faith. Eliab, his older brother, basically tells him he's an arrogant, annoying little brother, but David isn't thrown off. He's still going to fight. And when Saul hears about it, Saul brings him in, and there David's faith comes out once again, beginning in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And quite honestly, Saul sounds more like Goliath than a man of God at this point. He says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. 
But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, so far, it just sounds like David saying, I can do this, I can do this. But then in verse 37, he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David believes not only is God's glory on the line with this Philistine, but David knows the character of God. He's experienced God in life and death situations. As a shepherd, he's faced down lions and bears, and he's come out on top not because he's strong, but because the Lord delivered him. And something in that strikes a chord with Saul, and so Saul's going to send him, but Saul wants to prepare him by giving him his own armor, which clearly doesn't work, and so David puts it all off, and, and then we come to it. Verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield-bearer, and with his shield-bearer in front of him. It's an almost cartoonish scene, isn't it? This larger-than-life warrior strapped with armor and weapons like no other, face-to-face with a 15-year-old kid with a staff and five stones. And Goliath thinks this must be some kind of joke. He gets angry. His muscles flex. His neck bulges. Verse 43, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he curses David. And then he says in verse 44, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. I just want you to imagine that. You've got a staff. You've got a stone. You're looking up. At Goliath, who is bending over to look you in the eye. This is the time when anyone else would run and hide, but David doesn't. He stands his ground. Why? Not because he's a great warrior. Not because he believes in himself. But because he trusts the Lord. The Lord who delivered him in the past will deliver him today. And he tells Goliath as much, beginning in verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly, these scared people behind me here, will know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. It doesn't matter how big Goliath is, and it doesn't matter how small David is. David knows what Moses said to Israel when they were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptians. Exodus 14, the Lord will fight for you. 
David knows what Moses said once the spies came back from the promised land and talked about strong armies and strong cities and Goliath-sized warriors in Numbers 14. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. David knows what the Lord told Joshua when he was leading God's people into the promised land. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. David has this knowledge of the Lord and he has experience with the Lord. So David trusts the Lord. The Lord whom he can't see is stronger than the giant whom he can see. David here would quote 1 John, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. All Israel can see is certain death, and all David can see is God. God's commitment to His glory. God's commitment to His people. And God's commitment to Him. So David acts in faith. Goliath causes fear. David acts in faith. And then God gives the victory. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. It's just like David said. I mean, verse 50 says it. There was no sword in David's hand. David had just told the Philistine, the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. It was just like he said. The Lord delivered him Through a staff and a single stone. Now, to be clear, it's a stone that's probably two to three inches in diameter, and when it's slung right, it could fly about 100 to 150 miles an hour, so it could do damage. But still, this is a ridiculous strategy that David has. It is as ridiculous as marching around Jericho and then blowing trumpets. These things should not work, but they do. Not because they're brilliant, but because they are blessed by the power of God. The God who delivered David from the bear and the lion has delivered him from the giant. So, verse 50 rightly says, David prevailed over the Philistine, but we know the full story. David prevailed over the Philistine because God delivered David. And then when God's king defeats the enemy, God's people share in that victory. They don't deserve it. They acted like wimps, not warriors. Yet God gives them the victory through David. Verse 30, verse 52. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. It's amazing. 
Goliath caused fear, David acted in faith, and God gave the victory. Now, why is this story so significant? Let me give you three answers to that question. First, it's significant in Israel's history. It's significant in Israel's history. A victory like this gives David credibility in the eyes of the people. In fact, he immediately becomes the stuff of legend, and his life is set to music in chapter 18, verse 7. The women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And that was not a one-hit wonder. That one stayed around for a while. David went from shepherd to warrior overnight, so it's no surprise that after Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel, that David will eventually be king over all of Israel. It's a significant in Israel's history, but it's also significant for our lives. David is an example for us. When he steps onto the battlefield, to use the Apostle Paul's words, he walks onto that battlefield by faith and not by sight. David walks into a circumstance where it seems natural to be afraid, to run, to hide, but he doesn't. His reaction to the circumstance in front of him is not based on the circumstance in front of him. It is based on the God who is with him. Now, we are always facing those kinds of situations apart from the one in which we find ourselves as a nation. But even now, even since this all began, it seems that fear has spread faster than COVID-19 has. Fearing the disease itself, fearing the effects of the disease on our nation. I dare say that there are leaders even now who are fearful of making wrong decisions, who fear disappointing their base supporters, or who fear being attacked by the media, or fear being the first one to take a step in one direction or another. Fear is as widespread in the United States today as it, is, as it was on that Israelite battlefield 3,000 years ago. And dear Christians, Grey Road family in particular, as I said, we must be the ones who bring God into the situation. We must cling to God's sovereign goodness in the midst of chaos. We must remember that the God who has delivered us from sin, the paw of sin, the paw of death, and the paw of hell, will deliver us from the hand of whatever comes our way in this life. Because even if it kills the body, it cannot kill the soul. Why would you fear something that can only touch your body? You, we have to have a mindset that is bigger than this body and bigger than this life. We must not allow fear to take something like COVID-19 or to take something like economic distress and inflate them to Goliath-like magnitude so that the circumstances around us block out the light of God. We must walk by faith. No matter what we see in these days. And friend, not only that, remember this. The spirit who rushed on David is the spirit who resides in you. 
So it's not just that you must walk by faith. You can walk by faith. By the power of the Spirit, you can walk by faith. You can not fear what can only touch the body, what can only touch the bank account, what can only touch this life. By the power of the Spirit, you can. This story has significance for our lives. But the third and final answer is, it's significant in God's plan of salvation. You see, this is not merely an historical event. It's also a prophetic event. It points forward to David's descendant and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, as we look at this chapter, what we see as the main point is that God's king glorifies God by defeating God's enemies. That's the point of this chapter. But think about it. David is the least likely candidate for Savior. I mean, in this story, he's just a shepherd but he's committed to the glory of God. So David puts his life on the line for God's people, for the glory of God. And he defeats their enemy through the weakness of a staff and a stone. He saves them, and they share in his victory. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus has done, and yet his fight is even greater Jesus was an unlikely Savior. After all, He's just a carpenter. And Jesus is committed to the glory of God, but He doesn't just put His life on the line. He lays down His life. He dies for God's people. He defeats our enemy, our last and greatest enemy, death, through the weakness of his bruised and bloodied and torn and crushed and lifeless body. Even as David killed Goliath and cut off his head with his own sword, Jesus Christ has defeated death by death. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead with the decapitated head of death in his hand and cried out for all of us, victory. And whose son is he? Well, he is the son of David, the shepherd king. And he's the son of God, the king of all kings. And all who trust him will be saved. All who trust him will share in Jesus' victory. Don't Wait another day, my friend. Hebrews 2 tells us that the devil has the power of the fear of death in his hands. You will be rescued by that fear in no other way except through faith in Jesus Christ. You can be rescued from sin and death. You can be freed from the fear of God's judgment. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can, if you will, come to Jesus and trust in Him. You see, Saul has struck his thousands, 
David struck his ten thousands, but Jesus Christ has struck death itself, and he has killed death so that we might have eternal life. Come to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in the victory of Jesus Christ over death, that he has slain death by death, that death is dead, love has won, Christ has conquered, and that we who believe in him share in that victory, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our faith is the victory because Jesus has won the victory for us. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for these words. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the reminder that your power is perfected in weakness. Thank you for reminding us that your King has glorified you by defeating your enemies on our behalf. Help us to never speak of this story so lightly as to only think it means that we overcome great odds. Help us to think of this story as a story about your glory. And even now as we contemplate it, as it is preached, may it be that all the nations will know that there is a God who saves, not by sword or by spear, but by the death of Jesus Christ. Help us as a church to persevere in this time of separation. Help us as a church to bring God into this situation so that we might honor you in how we think and how we speak and how we respond to the news and how we treat our neighbors and how we operate in our families, and how we trust you in income reduction and job loss. Oh God, give us grace to bring you into our situation. Thank you by the power of the Spirit. We can walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to do that this day, this week, and in the days to come even when this disease is an historical event that is taught in elementary schools and high schools, once it is no longer something pressing on us, may we always live to glorify you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and keep us that you would make your face to shine upon us, that you would lift up your countenance on us and give us peace. We pray in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Amen.